I always knew I'd have kids. I just never intended to become a mother. I'm Dr. Leah Burge, and this is the Rockstar Parent Podcast. I'm a chiropractor, former college educator, life coach, and mom. Everyone has their own journey into motherhood. This podcast is devoted to telling my story and sharing what I found to be successful along the way. Episode 18, how to teach your kids to take out the garbage without goldfish or a soccer ball. If you haven't ever had to buy $70 worth of stuff at a pet store to accommodate the needs of a goldfish your kid won at a carnival or was gifted by a well-meaning friend or relative, well, you are one of the lucky ones. Or maybe you're the parent who on purpose chose to purchase the $70 worth of tank, decorative rocks, the little scuba man waving, and those fake plants along with the 31 cent goldfish because your kid has been begging for a pet and you just weren't ready to commit to a dog. You're right about the dog, by the way. You will be the one who ends up taking that little furball out at 5.30 a.m. in the cold to poop. It ain't going to be your seven-year-old, no matter how much they promise they will. When we made that trip to the pet store, I splurged on the $4 bubble-faced goldfish because I'm just that kind of extra when it comes to parenting, and I like to make things harder for myself. If you've listened to any of my past episodes of this podcast, you might remember the story where I thought it would be a great idea for the tooth fairy to pay for teeth in foreign currency. Yep, that's also me picking the harder road. And if you haven't heard that story and want to feel better about yourself as a parent, it's episode 13. Go ahead and listen. In addition to the $74 I spent on that first trip to the pet store for the goldfish, I also spent another $22 on medicine for that goldfish when it developed an infected swim bladder and began swimming around the tank upside down about a year later. It's just never a good sign when a fish turns upside down. The medicine I bought wasn't able to save Dorothy, but at least I knew I had done everything I could for her. It made the task of flushing her a little bit easier for all of us. I think, however, our most epic goldfish memory came when my daughter's eight-inch goldfish leapt out of its tank in what I can imagine was a moment of euphoria for the fish, only to land on the carpet of my daughter's bedroom and lay there gasping for air until my daughter woke up about 45 minutes later. Yes, we used forensic accounting methods to pinpoint exactly how long the fish must have been out of water, give or take five minutes. If you divide the time my husband left for work by the amount of time I had been awake and multiply it by the number of hours my daughter had already slept, you end up with roughly 45 minutes. Now, side note, I did say the goldfish was eight inches long. It was massive and he had a six inch friend. Now, honestly, I'm not sure if those two goldfish were he's or she's, but it doesn't really matter. It's not important for this particular story. 
We were gifted these beautiful creatures along with the tank and all of its contents by a wonderful friend whose kid had won them at a school carnival a couple of years prior, and those fish had grown to a massive size. We weren't ready for another dog at that point, and I thought my then 10-year-old daughter could definitely handle feeding them on her own. She named the pair Sean and Gus, after the main characters of our family's favorite TV show at the time. And on this morning, it was Sean Spencer Burge who had thrown caution to the wind and perhaps thinking he was a dolphin or maybe even a whale, beached himself right onto the sandy colored carpet of my daughter's bedroom. I cannot put into words the sheer terror of blood curdling screams coming from your kid's bedroom. Adrenaline shoots through every last inch of your body. Your usual aches and pains are not a factor as you jump out of bed and race down the hallway. It does help a little when you see your daughter standing in the doorway of her bedroom because you know she's okay. But the look on her face, the horror in her eyes as she points towards something inside her bedroom, it takes you from fear to dread. You walk the last 10 feet down the hallway, preparing yourself for the very worst. And then there it is. Sean on his side on the floor. Now adrenaline kicks in a second time and you overcome your usual phobia of picking up fish at all because you realize the thing is miraculously still alive. Your first instinct is to put it back in the tank, which you do, hoping for a second miracle that Sean will magically start swimming around as if it's just another fine day, showing you his gratitude for saving his life by doing a lap through the bubble wall feature in the tank and waving his little fin at you. But it was not to be. Sean did live through the day and actually into the next day, but he was clearly suffering and according to the teenager at the pet store that I called, he would not be perking up if he wasn't perking up already. We knew what needed to be done, but there was only one person who was equipped with the emotional strength to do it. I had flushed fish before, but this fish, because of his size, was not going quietly into that particular good night. My husband... Well, he wasn't looking forward to euthanizing the fish and disposing of it when he got home that day. But he made quick work of it for all of our sakes. He got home, he grabbed the necessary tools, he collected the fish from the bucket where he'd spent the last few hours, and did the deed behind the closed doors of our bathroom. There was a quiet knock on the door as he was wrapping the fish for his burial. It was our daughter letting my husband know that she knew that Sean was suffering and she hoped that her dad would do the kind thing and lay Sean to rest. Well, honestly, it was many, many, many years later that we revealed to my daughter that Sean was already dead when she knocked on the door that day. And inside the bathroom, we were imagining what we could possibly say to her if she had told us she believed that Sean was going to make it and that he deserved more time to get better. Well, gratefully, that particular speech was never needed. 
but my daughter did ask my oldest son if he would give a short speech and our second son if he would give the eulogy at the funeral that was hastily scheduled for right after dinner. Our daughter created a program for the funeral and asked if it was appropriate to have refreshments at the end of the ceremony. I suggested we could have goldfish crackers in honor of Sean. Okay, now I know that eating goldfish crackers at a fish funeral could really go either way depending on your point of view. But after a moment of reflection, my daughter agreed it was the most appropriate snack for the occasion. And by the way, her aunt also made some brownies because we all know that chocolate helps soothe the pains of a broken heart. I still have the only existing copy of that handwritten funeral program. If you follow me on social media, you'll be able to see it because I'll post a picture later with a link to this podcast. It even still has the post-it note precisely where my daughter placed it, showing the exact measurements of Sean Spencer Burge because she asked her dad to measure him after we told her he was at peace and no longer suffering. We used a plastic ruler that could be washed with soap and water afterward, although it would have been much easier to use the fabric tape measure that sits in the sewing kit that sits in my nightstand, even though I don't sew. It was a lovely service, but I'm sad to report that Gus died shortly thereafter from what we assume was a broken heart at the loss of his friend. Also, I heard that when a fish is dying, they emit chemicals into the tank that could be toxic to the other fish. So basically, when I put Sean back into the tank thinking I was saving his life, I might have done the very thing that killed Gus a week or so later. But we do not speak of it. The official cause of death is a broken heart. There was no second funeral. We were still too raw. But rest assured, Gus was wrapped just as lovingly and placed in the exact same type of shoebox before being put in the garbage can at the side of our home. We'd like to take a moment to thank Nike for protecting our feet and also providing a solid resting place for our beloved pets. Which brings me to what goldfish have to do with teaching your kids how to take out the garbage. Really, it's not so much that they need to be taught how to take out the garbage, as to being able to remember when the garbage needs to go out. My oldest son literally can remember thousands of statistics of his favorite football and basketball players and teams. He is a walking sports encyclopedia, but he was always surprised every Wednesday night when I would remind him, hey, tonight's garbage night, we gotta take the bins out to the street. Why is that? Well, yesterday, I saw a three-minute, 26-second video online of a man who taught five goldfish to play soccer. You heard me correctly. Goldfish pushing a soccer ball with their noses into little plastic goals set up in their tank. The floor of the aquarium is painted like a soccer field, green, with the white lines. The ball is weighted somehow because it rolls along the floor of the tank, while the fish push it into one of the goals that are set up at both ends. I actually watched the video twice because 
I was just amazed. Goldfish have a pretty small brain size compared to their body size. In biological terms, that means they aren't ranked at the top of the list as far as inherent intelligence goes, and yet they can be trained to play soccer. If this is true, imagine the potential of our human children who have very big brains compared to their relative body size. If a goldfish can be trained, I thought, then so can our children. Now, honestly, since my kids are all adults, I obviously know this already. They all take out the garbage at their own respective dwelling places on a regular basis. I know, because I've seen them do it whenever I visited them. Their rooms are not overrun with clothes and dirty dishes, and there are no toys still scattered on the floor when they go to bed at night. Their stuff is organized, they have jobs, and they pay their bills on time. Clearly, they can be trained. Now, as I watched that video about the soccer playing or football playing, if you're outside the US, goldfish, I realized that training is most successful when it becomes a priority. Not to the teacher, but to the learner. The fish learned to play soccer because they wanted to. Now, the food the trainer used to encourage and motivate them to push the ball doesn't hurt. But even that goes back to the learner wanting something. And so being willing to complete a task that is asked of them in exchange for something they consider a reward. And I really don't think it's that different with our kids. I think sometimes when they don't obey us or they tune us out or they forget it's garbage night, we take it personally. We imagine they're trying to push our buttons or maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have just failed as a parent or maybe they're just lazy, which by the way is also our fault because if we had just stuck with that chore chart when they were younger, maybe they would be harder workers today. You know, I honestly don't think it's any of those things. I think remembering to take out the garbage is our priority, but it isn't our children's priority. And until we can figure out an enticing exchange of goods for the services they provide, it isn't going to become a priority for them. And when they don't listen, remember, and obey, our first instinct is to assign negative consequences for not doing the task we want them to do. And I did it too. We take away privileges or we take away something else that's valuable to them if they don't do what we've asked them when we ask them to do it. And you know, that works in a lot of situations depending on the kid and what they prioritize as valuable to them. But I gotta be honest, whenever I did it that way, it never left me feeling very satisfied as a parent. I was recently in a conversation with my two sons, now 24 and 22. They began recounting the different consequences we used with them over the years. We all had a good laugh, and to be honest, I didn't even remember some of the things they told me I said or did when they were in trouble when they were younger. It's kind of scary. But what I do remember is that I was really big into natural consequences. So I got creative at times. One of my favorite go-to strategies was, if you can't be nice to people, you can't be with people. 
Now that meant that when my kids couldn't get along and play nicely with each other, they couldn't be with each other. I would put them with their own individual toy in separate parts of our house and they had to play independently until they could assure me that they could play nicely with each other. Now our house wasn't even that big and so sometimes they could still see each other even though they were technically separated. I would often hear them trying to do that sort of yell whispering thing to each other because they were wanting to communicate and continue whatever activity they had been doing before they got separated, but they didn't want me to know. Sometimes I would hear them giggling because they thought they were getting away with it behind my back. Now, depending on my mood, I would either remind them that they were not allowed to be playing together or other times I would just let it go because let's break down what's happening here. They on their own are coming to the realization that they wanted to be together. Now I would set the timer for the respectable 10 or 15 minutes, but they rarely made it the full time because usually my oldest would call out, Hey mom, can we play together again? We promise we'll get along this time. And that was that. I think to myself, knock yourselves out playing together nicely and sharing and getting along because doing that was now their priority too. So what if we introduce our kids to this concept of prioritization in a more formal way? We could actually ask them, of course, wording it in a way that is age appropriate. What is your biggest priority right now? Oh, your priority is being able to play together. Well, great. Then these are the conditions which must be met in order for you to be able to do what you want to do. In this way, we are rewarding good choices and good behavior with positive consequences. And we don't even have to come up with the positive consequences because they're going to tell us they know exactly what they want to be able to do. So here's another example. Your kid wants to play video games when they get home from school. You want them to finish their homework. You ask them, what is your priority? Now, if they're older, they're going to start to think this is a trick question because they know and you know that your priority as their parent is that they get their homework done. But they aren't going to want to get their homework done first until it becomes their priority. So you ask them, what is your priority? And they'll answer playing video games because their squad is meeting up in some corner of some imaginary world to evade some other imaginary enemies together. Now, I'm not judging their priority. I'm pointing out that the priorities are not going to match up. And in my real world life, their priority is never going to equal my priority. But this isn't about me as the parent. It's about them and training them and guiding them. So we start where they are and we work from there. Their priority is playing video games at a certain time for a certain amount of time. Okay, our response is, great, let's see what we can do to make that happen for you. The conditions that must be met before you're able to do what you want is, and then you fill in the blank. You know, the bottom line is that your conditions are going to be that their homework needs to be done or a certain portion of their homework needs to be done. The pushback is going to be that in their minds, they have 
hours and hours of homework and that there's no way they can reasonably get it done before they want to squat up. Well, that might or might not be true. We don't know. So what conditions can you as the parent live with that sweetens the pot for them and brings them on the same page as you are when it comes to priorities? Perhaps this is an option. Can they do 60 focused minutes of homework, then squat up and play video games for 70 minutes and you don't have to put the word focused in there because it's already a given. Then they come back and do 60 more focused minutes of homework before dinner. And after dinner, if the homework is complete, because we both know 120 focused minutes is a lot of time for a motivated student to be able to complete a good amount of homework. So if the homework is complete, then they have even more time after dinner to do more of what they want, whatever their priority is. Okay, the situation is reasonable, it's non-emotional, it's framed in a way that helps them understand that meeting your conditions opens the way for them to be able to achieve their greatest priority. Now, there will be some of you that ascribe to the thought that you as a parent shouldn't have to jump through these hoops with your kids. You're the parent. You speak and they listen. And I agree that you can absolutely approach these situations that way if you want to, because you're right, you're the parent. But I'm asking you to consider that the way I'm describing here might be an alternative that introduces dialogue, builds critical thinking and time management skills, utilizes smaller manageable goals with checkpoints along the way to allow for opportunities to self-correct. And the bonus is you don't have to go thinking up creative consequences. The consequences, both positive and negative, are already built in. They get to achieve their greatest priority if they meet your conditions or they don't. It's pretty cut and dried. And we know as parents, this is the way the real world works. You get a job because you meet certain conditions to be able to get the job. And then once you have the job, you have to meet certain other conditions that are set up by your employer to keep the job. When you perform well, you get a paycheck. And when you don't, you get fired. It's a model we are very familiar with as adults. We just don't readily apply that model to how we parent our kids, but it's business and it's easily transferable to our families. So how do we get our kids to remember Wednesday night is garbage night? Well, that one proved way more tricky for me. Our garbage night hasn't changed in the 11 years since we've lived in this house. And yet, when my kids come home to visit, they still don't always remember. It's about priorities. And it's about goldfish. Because knowing goldfish can be trained to play soccer gives us hope. Our kids, who have way more potential than a goldfish, well, they can definitely be trained. And it's okay with me if they forget that Wednesday night at our house is garbage night because they do remember which night is garbage night at their own house. I'm just a girl who was ready to start her family, so I got pregnant and had a baby. But what I learned as I raised my own kids, 
That is the secret to becoming the parent I dreamed I could be and is exactly what I'm sharing with you. Let's rock this parenting thing together.